Well, good morning, ARC. All right. How are you doing this morning? Good, good, good. Before we get to the word this morning, I want to say another word of welcome to all of you who are visiting with us this morning. We can't think of any place we'd rather have you be. We're delighted that you've chosen to be with us this morning. Uh, I'm Pastor Thabiti, along with Pastor Jeremy. Thank you for that pastoral prayer, brother. Bless me this morning, along with Pastor Jeremy and Pastor Matt. We have the privilege of serving as the, the, the pastors currently of this congregation. And uh, on behalf of the congregation, the church family, we want to welcome all of you uh, to our service this morning and our praise of our Lord. Uh, we don't like to embarrass folks when we welcome them, uh, but we do like to acknowledge them. And so I just want to invite you, if you're willing, if you're a first-time visitor with this morning, just stand where you are. We want to give God praise for your being with us and acknowledge your being with us this morning. Any first-time visitors? Amen. <laughs> praise God. <laughs> praise God. Amen. So if you'll either keep standing or, or raise your hand, uh, the ushers are going to bring you that little welcome card that Jeremy mentioned a moment ago, and want to invite you to take that offering or that, that uh, welcome card and complete it for us and give it to us after the service. We'd love to know how we could follow up with you. You'll see a place on the back for prayer requests, and uh, we'd love to get to know you better, not just by this card, but in person. So stick around after the service, have some coffee and and uh, muffins with us. We'd love to shake your hands and, and get to know you a little bit. So thank you for coming this morning. I, I said I wouldn't embarrass folks, but there are at least some people I'm going to embarrass, and, uh, and, and they're okay with that, I think. Uh, first off, I want you to, to meet dear, dear friends of Christy and mine, uh, Tina Scott and Tina Wyatt, um, both from North Carolina, where Tina's originally from South Carolina. We won't hold that against her. Uh, but both from down south. Uh, Tina Wyatt, uh, I grew up with and uh, went to school with all my school days. And uh, Tina Scott's husband, Derek Scott, was my best friend from the time I was about three or four years old. And, uh, and so it's been a blessing to have them in town with us. Uh, this is your chance to get any stories uh, <laughs> that you'd like to get. And so it's great to be with you, you sisters. And then I want to acknowledge, and, and he, he's not easy to embarrass, Pastor John Erickson, pastor of Jubilee Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who's here with his family and uh, vacationing in D.C. and decided to worship with us. Some of you will know John's generosity, even if you don't know that he's been generous to you, uh, because it was Jubilee Church and John Erickson who were um, kingdom-minded enough and generous enough to send us Jahil Richards and the Richards family. Uh, this is where they worshiped and served, and uh, they are partners with us in the gospel, and uh, we love them for it, and uh, we're so glad you can worship with us, brother. So, all right. As you can tell, or if you can't tell, let me make it obvious, uh, we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel seriously. Uh, so here, if you're first time with us, you're going to find church hats and snapbacks, all right? You're going to find floor shimes and timberlands, all right? And uh, come as you are, and we mean that. And, uh, and leave having met the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be considering verses 1 to 11 or so if the Spirit gives us leave. And as you turn there, I just want to remind us and, and um, invite us, if you're here visiting this morning and you, didn't, you don't have a Bible, uh, you don't have a Bible at home, just raise your hands. Uh, these, these handsome gentlemen will bring you a Bible, and we invite you to use that in our service. You'll be helped to follow along with us. Uh, if you use the Bible as we preach it. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want to invite you to take this one. Let this be our gift to you. Uh, we, we very much want to see the Word of God in every home. And so don't, don't feel like you're sneaking out with a Bible. 
it's a gift. Take that with you, okay? Um, And so if you're visiting with us this morning, you've landed with us. If you turn to page 9 in your bulletin, you've landed with us in the middle of a sermon series through our Statement of Faith, the London Baptist Confession, written by Christians in 1689 in London, England. Uh, It has been one of the confessional standards for Baptist churches uh, for these four centuries almost, Uh, and we stand in that long line of Christians who have believed these things. We're a new church, and so we thought it good to take the church through a study of what we believe because the most important thing you need to know about a church that you visit is, in fact, what it believes and, and what it stands on in terms of the Bible's teaching. So let me give you just a little bit of an overview We are now in chapter 16, Good Works, Uh, but we began in chapter 1 with the Scripture, and that's what we believe about the Bible, that it is the Word of God, that it is infallible, uh, that it is our authority. We stand under it, not not over it, and it is is life to us. It gives life to us. Uh, Chapters 2 to 5 there, those are really uh, four chapters on the doctrine of God, what He's like, how He acts in the world. We believe that God is one. One God who exists in three persons eternally, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe that he's decreed all things and he rules all things and he's sovereign. Now, in chapters 6 down to 18, that's a long list of chapters that all have to do really with what we believe about how people are saved, how God saves people. We believe that people are saved by faith alone. And they have that faith only because of God's grace alone. And that faith must rest in Jesus Christ alone, who was crucified for our sins, buried for three days, and raised from the grave on the third day, who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he is waiting until all of his enemies are conquered. So everything is brought under his feet, and then he will come again, and he will gather those who believe in him and bring him into his eternal kingdom to enjoy his love and fellowship forevermore. We believe that. We give our lives for that. So we're in that section. Let me give you the rest of the overview. Chapters 19 to 25, those are several chapters on the Christian life, how we believe Christians are to live. And then chapters 26 to 30 are several chapters on the church's worship. Until you come to 31 and 32, what we believe about how time will end and eternity begin. Okay, so we're in chapter 16 here, uh, coming to near the end of this string of chapters on uh, salvation. And one of the things to get really clear in our minds with regard to how it is we are saved, how it is we escape God's judgment against sin, against us as sinners, and how it is we run to that same God who is judged for, for rescue, to be saved or rescued from that coming judgment, One of the things that gets straight about that is the relationship between faith and good works and good deeds. That's really important because much of the world and every other religion gets it precisely backwards. Much of the world and every other religion gets it precisely backwards. And at that point, We're not only not talking about Christianity any longer, we're not talking about a religion that can save you from your sins and the judgment of God to come. So let me give you the main point for this morning, and we're going to look at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, and we're going to make reference to our statement of faith along the way. If you want to summarize the, the main point this way, you might put it this way. The good news 
makes good people who do good works. The, the good news makes or creates good people who then in turn, being made new, do good works. Okay? Now, Titus chapter 3, you'll find that on, on what page? On 998, if you have the Bibles that we've provided. Um, if you were using my Bible, you'd find it on 1201, but there it is. Titus chapter 3, when I say chapter, I'm referring to the big number in the Bible. When I say verse, I'm referring to the small number there. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, I'm going to read that, but let me give you our outline um, real quickly. Number one, we have a reminder that we are to be good people. You see that there in verses 1 and 2. Number two, we have a reason for why we're to be good people. It's because our good God saved us. Our good God saved us. And then number three, the result is we good people who have been saved by a good God, we are to number three, commit ourselves to good works. Okay? Good people, good God, good works. Titus 3, 1 to 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one and to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So let's look at this first thing, the reminder here, to be good people. Let me give you a little context on this letter. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that the letter is written by Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle was an early leader in the early church uh, who was a, a messenger, a sent one of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man, Paul, is one of those leaders sent by Christ to evangelize and establish churches and then to teach those churches the truth about God and to lead them according to God's word. And, and much of the scripture, including this letter we're reading, were written by apostles like Paul. And verse 4 tells us that he's writing to a man named Titus, his true son in the faith is how he describes him. Titus was a young pastor that was uh, sometimes traveled with Paul 
and served with him in the gospel ministry. And Paul has, chapter 1, verse 5, he's left Titus in this place called Crete, and he's left him with a specific um, charge, and it's a charge that is really quite appropriate even to our lives as a, as a new church. He's left him there. Look, chapter 1, verse 5, this is why he left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's his job. Organize the church, appoint leaders, teach God's word. But that's a difficult job in a place like Crete. So look at chapter 1, verse 12. Notice what the, uh, the Bible says there. For one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Here's a town that had a reputation so bad and so well known that even their prophets and their poets are quoted as acknowledging it, right? And here's a town and, and a group of people in a town who are in some sense so far gone that even a man inspired by God to write the Bible has to say, this is true. That's a rough you minister to, Titus. So he has a difficult job among a difficult people, right? And so it's into this context that chapter 2 begins. And, and Paul says there now in chapter 2, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. See, God has high expectations even for lowly people. It, it isn't the case that because uh, people come from a, a rough background or people who have lived a, a rough life or people who don't have the best education or some sort of thing like that. It is not the case that, that God then has sort of lower expectations or doesn't expect the best of his word to be taught to the worst of people. And so he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's good teaching, sound doctrine for, quote, bad people. And when it says teach what accords with it, he doesn't just mean teach as we're doing what your statement of faith says or, or teach some principles from the Bible, what accords with it, the life that goes alongside it. So teach them the truth and teach them how to live according to the truth. And it's in this context that chapter 3, really, uh, our text is sort of written here. So Paul begins in chapter 3, writing to Titus, instructing Titus to teach the Christians in Crete. He says, remind them. Remind them must mean these are things that they already knew, right? They, they would have known it either through Paul's teaching or someone's teaching, or they would have known it by the light of nature, it would have been common sense. It would have been, it would have been in some sense obvious to them. God would have written it on the conscience, right? In either event, you, you know, in either event, though, they, they need a reminder of it. They need to be taught it again. And here's a reality about the Christian life. Christians leak. We leak. We, we learn things, and we're excited about it. And in a couple of weeks, God has to teach it to us again, right? I mean, I, most of our, our, quote, breakthroughs, most of our, our best moments, best, most of our aha moments, are, don't they sort of come with this sense of, tag, I used to know that. <laughs> you ever ask yourself, why does God have to keep teaching me the same thing over and over and over again? It's because we leak. 
we forget. So it's the job of pastors to refill leaking Christians again and again with the knowledge of the faith. Some of the best ministry is simply telling people what they already know. Some of the most effective counsel we will ever give will simply be to open the Bible and remind people. Now, that's liberating as a pastor. It means I don't have to be the smartest one among us. And that's good because I ain't, right? I, I don't have to be the most clever person among you. When you're looking for a pastor and seeking faithful pastoral care, you, you're really not looking for that guy who is flashy and slick. He's wearing the gaiters and the 16-button suit, and, you know, he's got all the degrees on the wall. That's not really what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who will tell you something old, something you already knew. You're looking for someone to be faithful to what's already being revealed in God's Word, and from time to time, just remind you of it, right? And so these precious words, he says to Titus, remind them of these things. And verses 1 and 2 list several things the Cretans need reminding about, and these are things that we need to be reminded about too. We might group the things in verses 1 and 2 into two categories. First of all, there are some reminders about our attitudes, some reminders about our attitudes. Look at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. Three things there, submissive, obedient, ready. Submissive to rules and authorities, obedient, and ready for every good work. And really, these attitudes mostly deal with our perspectives with authority, don't they? That word submission means we are to order ourselves under the authorities that God has placed in our lives. That's from the president and the legislature down to the city council and city government. That's parents who are authorities that God has established in the home. That's our bosses in the workplace or our teachers at school. Our good God has established authority for our blessing. And it is key to the Christian life that we submit ourselves to those authorities. And not only submit ourselves, order ourselves under those authorities, but there is no submission that doesn't also include obedience. And, and there is no obedience that, that doesn't really include a full-hearted submission. So not only to submit, but to obey. Now I'm going to back my wife just a little bit. She don't mind. She used to it too. I remember when we were getting premarital counseling, which was probably about 30 minutes. We wouldn't enough. <laughs> we were not believers, and we were just young and in love, and, you know, just wanted to get married. And, yeah, we're still young and in love. That's right. And, uh, and so, so the pastor comes over, and he's counseling us, and he's taking us through the vows, and, and he gets to that point in the vows where he's, you know, talking with her about her commitment that she is to sort of obey me, to submit to me and obey me. I sat real still. <laughs> nobody moves, nobody gets hurt. Yeah. <laughs> She looked at him, she's like, there won't be no submission in the vows. And the guy had a lisp. And so he was speaking with a lisp, and he saw her face, he started stuttering too. He's like, he just, just sprayed us down, right? You know, you know, she scared the life out of the preacher, man. What is it about submission and obedience that makes us think that when we get grown, we don't have to do it? Don't we tend to think of obedience and obey as words we say to children? 
It's as if there's some magical age where it doesn't apply to us, and we have wrongly thought of adulthood and maturity as being so independent that there's no one we give account to. The Bible word for that is rebellion. The Christian life is a life of submission to authority because ultimately, Romans chapter 13, our submission to authorities is submission to the one who established human authorities, namely God himself. When we disobey authority, we don't only disobey the authority, we disobey God. And that's true of us if we're eight-year-olds or six-year-olds or 10-year-olds disobeying our parents. And it's true of us if we're 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds or 50-year-olds disobeying bosses or government or any other legitimate authority God has put in our lives. We're instead to be ready to do every good work. Now, this is important right now where we live, given everything going on in our culture. So we see Supreme Court decisions handed down, and it's a test of faith, beloved, as to whether or not we will submit to authorities. We, we almost every week, we see some incident involving police and citizens that, that seems to end up in death. And it's a test of faith how we think about submission to authority. And it's not as simplistic as we either rebel against it because they're wrong or we just agree with it because they're the authorities. No, it's more nuanced than that. The Bible's more careful than that. So let me, let me give you some things to add to this, right? Because this is critical. And it's critical that we work this out and live this out because right now the world is killing itself about these things. Let me give you some qualifications. We never submit to authority when they require of us what only belongs to God. You remember how our Lord Jesus put that? Some people came to him, and they had a Roman coin, and it had Caesar's inscription on it. And the Gospels tell us wanting to trap him and get him in trouble with the authorities. They said, you know, um, should, we, should we pay taxes? And Jesus pulls out this coin, and he says, whose inscription is on it? He says, Caesar's. So he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. You see, God established Caesar's authority, and he also limits it. There are some things that Caesar can do, and there are some things that he can't. And worship is one of those things, and ultimate obedience is one of those things that only belongs to God. And this is why we see the early apostles, for example, in the book of Acts, being arrested by Jewish authorities, taken into a Jewish court, and whipped for preaching the gospel, and then told, don't preach that name Jesus anymore. And the apostle says, you know what? You figure out whether or not it's right or not, but we, we're going to preach the name of Jesus. Right? There are limits to human authority. And one of them is they can't ask of us anything that belongs only to God. Let me give you a, a, another limit, another way in which we need to think about this carefully. We submit to authority only insofar as they do not require us or lead us into sin and unrighteousness. They have authority given by God, but that authority does not include compelling us to evil, to wickedness, to, to sin and unrighteousness. And, and again, the Bible is just full of examples of this. Think of Exodus chapter 1, the, the two Hebrew midwives. 
You remember Pharaoh, the king, the greatest king in all the earth with all authority in Egypt, has commanded that, that children being born would basically be aborted at birth. And, and there are these two women, Shifra and Pua, midwives, delivery nurses, who refuse to obey the edict of Pharaoh. Thus was spared Moses' life, and thus was provided the deliverance of Israel. That was an act of civil disobedience that was appropriate. Or, or think about in Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, I believe it is, Shadrach, Meshach, and that bad Negro. Remember that? Remember that? <laughs> They're commanded by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, to, to worship this idol. They, they refuse in an appropriate act of civil disobedience. And what? They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And even Nebuchadnezzar is made to see some things he didn't see before. He said, how many did we throw into the oven? I said, was it not three? Yo, I see a fourth one in there. And the Lord preserving his people through the fire. We, we do not obey authorities that call us into evil, into sin, into weakness. Finally, finally, we do not obey authorities when the authorities themselves infringe upon rights that the authority has given us. Think about the Apostle Paul, the very one who wrote this letter. Twice in Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 22, Paul is arrested for usually preaching the gospel and in the preaching of the gospel causing some kind of civil disturbance and he's taken before authorities and in those couple of chapters, Paul was roughed up and mistreated. And you know what Paul did? You know what he did? He says, is this how you treat a Roman citizen? And the soldiers all trembled because he was a man who was a citizen of Rome. What is Paul doing? He's evoking his civil rights over and against the civil abuses of the authority. Bring it to our context. We have a constitutional right to, to, to assemble, freedom of assembly. We have a constitutional right to, to protest, even protest against the government that may be infringing upon our rights. We have a constitutional right to, to gather and to march in streets, streets lawfully, lawfully. I'm not talking about riots here. That's something that even our framing documents, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, guarantees to us, and the best way to be citizens is to fight for them, even against the government authorities that infringe upon them. In those three ways, this submission to authority is qualified biblically, right? However, our heart's posture, this is about attitude, ought to be a desire to submit to the authorities that God has established, knowing that God has established them, and to obey, and to be ready to do every good work. For rulers are not a terror to those who are righteous, but those who are unrighteous. But now there's second, second verse 2 here. There's a reminder not only about our attitudes, but now it gives us a reminder about our actions. To speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. These, these things address how we treat other people. Now, a little truth-telling from the pastor. I don't always do these things. 
And I don't want to project my sin onto you, but I'm guessing there are a few of these that you fail at too. Yep. Even this morning on the way to church, somebody was arguing with their wife, quarreling, right? Or thinking hard thoughts and expressing hard thoughts toward, toward other people. Let's stay in our, our modern context. You can go to Christian blogs and Christians on Twitter and Christians on Facebook and immediately get the sense that God's people ought not be on social media. Because God's people are sometimes among the most slanderous, who, who are prolific at speaking evil about people. It's one thing to disagree about an issue. It's another thing to look at people made in the image of God and to blaspheme them, to slander them, to speak evil of them. We don't always show the discernment and maturity to know the difference. But we're not to speak evil of, of anyone, whether we're in debates about abortion or debates about same-sex marriage or debates about police misconduct. Now, we thread the needle by recognizing that everybody we're talking to is made in the image of God and in need of the same grace and redemption that we're in need of, right? But instead, we're to be gentle and show perfect courtesy all people. Sometimes the Bible just raises the bar, doesn't it? It doesn't just say courtesy. <laughs> Perfect courtesy. It doesn't just say courtesy to the people you like. <laughs> to all people. You're like, God, stop using these adjectives, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Perfect courtesy to all people. Wow, that's an ambition, isn't it? That's a goal. Now imagine in Crete, or neighborhoods like Crete, God is to sit down a little community inside the community where people don't argue, fuss, and fight, but instead they respect each other and love each other, and they're courteous toward one another. They, they treat each other kindly, you know. You, you're not even a member of the church. You walk in from the community. You're not sure you're supposed to be there, and you walk up to a row uncertain of where to sit, and lo and behold, people move over. Huh? give you the best seat. Or you come into that community and you're not sure you're supposed to be there and you're hurting. And you're not sure you even want to tell anybody about your hurts. And, and you've been living with this unexplainable guilt. You do, you're guilty about things that you, you weren't guilty about before. You're troubled about a relationship that you're in or you're troubled about an activity that you were doing even the night previous and, and, and your conscience is, is afflicting you. Your conscience is kind of beating you up. You come into this community hopeful to hear something kind but doubting that you will. And lo and behold, in all of your brokenness, you found not one, not two, but you found several people who greeted you, who welcomed you, who took you by the hand and introduced you to other people and, and listened to you. I mean, they really listened. When they asked you how you were doing, they weren't sort of moving on to the next person as they were asking you that. They, they kind of awkwardly stopped and looked at you, <laughs> waiting for an answer. And you had to decide, am I going to tell the truth? 
And you decided, I'm going to risk it this time. I'm going to give them a little bit of the truth. And you told them the truth, and they didn't blink. They didn't smile. They didn't run away. They didn't look disgusted. He said, tell me more. And still a little bit uncertain. You, you shared a little bit more. And you found that every little bit that you gave them seemed to draw them nearer to you. And they didn't go and tell the next person what you told them. They kept your confidence. And then they started to offer you things, like to pray with you right then. And, and to come, come with them to lunch or dinner after church. And they called you a couple days later just to check on you, see how you were doing. And they began to tell you things that were meant to give you hope. Imagine if in a place like Crete, full of lazy beasts and drunkards and liars, God sat down a community of people who were perfectly courteous and gentle and didn't quarrel. That's his vision for us, that we would be a community of people in the midst of a wider community who would be known for this kind of attitude, submissive to authority and respectful within appropriate biblical bounds and courteous and loving to everyone we come into contact with. Those are the good people Christians are meant to be. And the question for us is, as we sang a bit ago, will we say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way? Ask yourself that. The second thing. These are the good people that Christians are meant to be, but there's a reason. And the reason is that God has already done something to us. Right? So you see there, verse 3 begins with the word for. He's going to explain now why he said what he said in verses 1 and 2. And so let me read verses 3 to 7 for us. He says, for, or for this reason, here's why you should be this way. You should be good people. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is one of those long, beautiful Pauline sentences, right? Notice where he starts here in verse Three, because this section can be divided into two parts. Number one, what we were. That's what he describes in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, when Paul says we ourselves, two things strike us, don't it? When he says we ourselves, it strikes us that the attitudes and actions in verses 1 and 2 are things we show to people outside the Christian church. 
He's drawing a distinction now between the, the church and the world. Those things in one and two are not just things we do for and with each other. They are things we do in the world of people. Now he's talking about we ourselves. But notice the second thing that strikes us about that, that little phrase, we are ourselves. The Apostle Paul, this man who had been a strict religious Jew, all of his days before he met Christ, even as a strictly religious man, groups himself in the we of verse 3. He was really a religious Jewish man, but he was also really rotten. The sins he's pointing out in the Cretan people are sins he participated in too, even though you wouldn't have known it looking at him in all of his religious dress and religious activity. So he writes as a sinner, say, not as a sin-free saint. He remembers what he was, and that creates closeness with the people he wants to reach. And this is why, beloved, this is part of the ARC family. I, somebody told me this was cheesy, but they liked it. This is, why, this is why you hear us say from time to time, we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel of Jesus Christ seriously. Why? Because we, we were the very things that he's talking about in verse 3. All of us were that. We, we've got a before Christ. We've got a past. And we ain't been saved so long and so completely that we ought to act like we don't have one. And we ain't been saved so long and so completely that when people come to us whose sin is more obvious than ours is right now, that we act like we don't have any sins or never lived that way. And the Bible word for that is hypocrisy. The Bible word for that is self-righteousness. That's not the gospel. Paul says we ourselves, and he sweeps up all of us into verse 3. And, and look at what he says there. It's not flattering, is it? Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, passing our days in malice and envy, hated and hating. Notice how the description goes from sort of personal failings, foolish, disobedient, to stronger forms of imprisonment, led astray, enslaved to various passions and lusts, to the destruction of relationships and life, passing our days in malice and envy or jealousy, hating, hated by others, and hating one another. It's true, too, isn't it? Life apart from Christ is not a pretty life. Life in sin is destructive to everything. The pollution begins in us. We are sinners, but it doesn't end with us. It spreads like a fungus until it poisons everything around us. You see that last phrase there, passing our days in malice and envy. You get this sense of people kind of sitting on long summer days, just steeped and stewing in anger and hatred. And it's true. What's the end of such a life? It goes from being a living hell to being an eternal hell. We die in verse 3 
apart from the saving work of God in verse 4 and following. We die in our sins and we suffer the wrath of God forever. We go from a living hell to an eternal hell. That's why we need to be saved, beloved. That's what makes the but of verse 4 so beautiful. Oh my gosh. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Don't, don't run past that. Don't run past that. Because, here's, here's why. Because we live in a world that consistently doubts the goodness and the love of God. We live in a world that consistently questions whether or not God is good. We look at suffering. We look at evil. We look at loss. We, we look at the brokenness of our own lives, and we often wonder, is God good? Is he there? And if he's there, does he love me? And if he loves me, what's he doing about my brokenness? <laughs> if we think that way long enough, we begin to think hard thoughts toward God. But this verse tells us the goodness and the loving kindness of God did not remain hidden to us, but it, it appeared to us. It was, it was revealed to us. It was shown to us. It was opened up for us to see. God is in the business of revealing himself, and in this aspect, he reveals his goodness and his love. The question is, how and when? Verse 5, he, he revealed it. When he saved us. That's how God showed us his goodness and his loving kindness. God does good works too. And the particular good work that he does for us is rescuing us from our sin and from the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. We needed to be saved. And maybe you're here this morning and you're coming to be aware of the fact that you need to be saved. We're telling you this, again, not because we're self-righteous and we have saved ourselves. Notice the grammar of the verse. He saved us. He rescued us. We were in verse 3, passing our days in malice and envy, being hated by others and hating others, enslaved to various passions and lusts, being led astray, foolish though we thought ourselves wise, disobedient though we thought ourselves grown. We were headed toward hell, and God saved us. And we're here to tell you that God will save you. He'll save you. Don't be, don't be afraid to admit that verse 3 might actually be accurate about your life. Because it's in admitting that that you're then able to receive verse 4. It's in admitting your sin and your brokenness and your rebellion that you're then able to see, oh, God is good because God has sent a Savior to rescue me from the judgment to come. How did he save us? Think about what we were. Well, the first thing verse 5 tells us is he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And we said before, it's important to get the order right. We become good people because a good God has saved us. We, we, we don't we're not saved because we become good people. 
It's precisely the other way around, and this is what verse 5 means. It's not because of righteous things that we have done. I tell you, if you look forward to standing before God and somehow going into heaven based upon how well you have lived, you're going to come up short, infinitely short. None of your righteous deeds added and multiplied will amount to the perfection that God requires of us in judgment. You're going to be short. Here's how our statement of faith puts it. It's printed in your bulletin, I think, beginning on page 10. Look there with me at paragraph 5. I'm going to read paragraph 5 and paragraph 7. It's verses like verse 5 that calls us to confess the summary of, of paragraphs 5 and 7. Notice what it says there. Let's read it together. We cannot, even by our best works, merit either the pardon of sin or the granting of eternal life at the hand of God. For those works are of all proportion to the glory to come. And furthermore, there is infinite distance between us and God, and no works of ours can yield him profit or act as payment for the debt of our former sins. Indeed, when we have done all that we can, we have done but our duty and remain unprofitable servants. We are also to remember that so far as our, good, our works are good, they are produced by his spirit. As far as they are our work, they are marred and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they fall utterly to meet the st certain requirements of God's standards. Now look with me at verse 7 or paragraph 7, excuse me. Because here, it wants, we're teaching you about the good works that unbelievers do. And people who are not yet Christians do do good things. But we don't want you mistaken about it ever satisfying God. So look at paragraph 7. Let's read it together. As for works done by unregenerate men, even though God may have commanded them, and they may be highly useful both to themselves and to others, yet they remain sinful works for the following reasons. They do not originate in a heart purified by faith. They are not done in the right manner prescribed in Scripture, and they are not directed to the glory of God as the only right end. Hence, they cannot please God, nor can they make a man fit for the reception of grace. Yet the neglect of such works is more sinful and more displeasing to God than is the performance of them. Wow, that's rich. Here's, here's what it's saying if you're not a Christian, if you're not what it calls, or if you are what it calls an unregenerate man, and we'll, we'll explain that in a moment. You may do good works, but the works are corrupted by your sin. And, and sin expressed at least in three, in three ways here. They don't come from a heart purified by faith in God. They, they, they are not done in accordance with God's commands, with his word and scripture. And, and they are not directed to God's glory. So if you're not a Christian living for the glory of God, the best you can live for is the glory of yourself or someone else. That's a kind of self-worship. That too is sin before God. And notice here, you might say, well, why should I live a good life? Well, the answer here is 
not to would be even more sinful than if you had done these imperfect works. You would be compounding your judgment to go on in wickedness and evil apart from Christ. Now that little phrase, unregenerate men, is spoken to right here in our text. So look again with me in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That word mercy there means that he's treating us better than He is in some sense lightening the judgment. Right? Well, how does he do that? Notice there, it continues, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let me give you three or four words to write down here as part and parcel to how God saved us. I had a dear sister in our previous church in the Cayman Islands named Dawn. Dawn came up to me one day after Bible study. She says, um, I never heard all these Asian words. I looked at her. I said, Haitian words? I don't know no Haitian words either. She said, no, all them Asian words you're teaching us. Sanctification, justification, <laughs> regeneration. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. This word here is the first Asian word. It's regeneration. You see it there? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. When God saved us, he washed us. And he renewed us. We're giving regeneration means to be born again. We're giving this second life. We are born again. That's how God saves us. And, and in this new birth, we're not like new babies that come naturally out of the womb, covered with, with blood and things from, from the womb. In this new birth, we come forth shining, speaking span clean, washed by the Holy Spirit in this regeneration. Renewed. The old life, the dead life is, is gone away now, and there is a, a new life given to us that, that is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 3. You'll know these words. When Nicodemus, a religious leader, came to him at night, and Jesus explained to him, you must be born again. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's Jesus' word to you. You must be born again. And that rebirth, that regeneration, he will do through his spirit if you trust in him. But notice the second thing. We not only we see regeneration, but we also see sanctification. So we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the text goes on to say, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that when God saved us, he not only washed us by the spirit, but he, he gave us his spirit. He, he, as it were, poured out. We're still using the metaphor of, of washing and cleansing, which goes all the way back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The Spirit washed us and renewed us, and it is the Spirit who is poured out onto us to, to sanctify us, to, to keep us. And, and He gives us His Spirit not grudgingly, not, not merely, not temporarily, but notice there, He pours out His Spirit on us richly, abundantly. The Spirit of God, who is God himself in the third person, comes to live in people who, in verse 3, were dead in their sins. And he gives them new life 
and he cleanses them from their sins. He washes them, and he renews them, and he dwells in them until the day that our salvation is final. God saved us by regenerating us. God saves us by sanctifying us. Notice the third Asian word, justification. He saves us by justifying us. So the verse goes on to say, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That word justified means righteous or right standing. We are justified with God, even though we're sinners, by God's grace, by God's kindness, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that faith, all the righteousness of Jesus becomes ours. It's credited to our account. And all the sin of sinners, he takes and atones for and dies for on the cross to satisfy the Father's anger toward us. It's called the sweet exchange. He takes our sin. We take his righteousness. And God declares us justified. I can't put it better than Shy Land put it in a song. It feels so good to be justified. Either trust or die. You must decide. It feels so good to be justified. And the choice believer or unbeliever is trust or die. And you decide, would you trust Jesus and be justified by God and washed by God and regenerated by God and live forever with the hope of eternal life and, and in the presence of God and in his kingdom? Would you, would you trust Christ or would you die in your sins and that will not feel good? And will feel horrible forever in the eternal judgment of God. You decide. You stand right now between life and death, between blessing and cursing. Choose life, choose blessing. Don't go on in your sin. Confess them, turn from them, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as your only offering to God to pay the debt for your sins and your only hope of right standing before God because he perfectly obeyed him. Call upon him and you will be saved. Reject him and the hell that you risk is too terrible to describe. Beloved, trust me when I tell you, a brother who was deep fried in sin, it feels so good to be justified. Trust him. Trust him. This is the hope held out to you. And Christian, this is what God has done for you. Notice, it's past tense. He saved us. This is now your biography. This is your spiritual life. This is what God has done for you. And, and this is what God will continue to do in terms of keeping you until you receive that hope of an eternal inheritance. You get to live for that. You get to live in light of that. 
and, and not trembling as though it may not happen, but, but assured because it's past tense. He has saved you. you. You get to rest your hopes, not in what you do, beloved, but you get to rest your hopes in what God has done. And every day you get to go back to what God has accomplished in Christ his son. You get to forget yourself and to forget your sin in that way and to forget the hopes of ever having a perfection of your own and to say, Jesus is my perfection. Jesus is my righteousness. Heaven is my hope. Eternal life is my goal, my destiny, my reward. I'm going to live this day in light that day because I can't wait for that day. That's yours, Christian. That's yours. And this is the good news from a good God who has made us good people by this gospel. We trusted it when we first came to Christ. It's our joy to trust it every moment now as we live in Christ. Which brings us to our final thing, and we'll close. Number three, see the result of all of this in verse eight. We are good people, made so by a good God who sent us good news, the gospel, and, and he has done that. The result of that is that we would do good works now. That's where our good works come from, this work that God has done in saving us. Notice, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So remember our main point, the good news makes good people who do good works. Because God saved us out of his own goodness and kindness, we are now to show goodness and kindness to all others. Notice how our statement of faith puts this. Let's look at paragraphs three and four this time. It says there, and we can read this together when you get there. When you get there, say amen. The rest of y'all hurry up now. Y'all taking the preacher time. <laughs> the London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph three. Let's read this together. Works that are truly good and which are done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits, that's the wrong paragraph? That's two? Okay, see, I, I like that. Y'all keep a brother honest. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Works that are truly good and which are done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidence of a true and living faith. By means of them, believers make known their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance of salvation, edify their brethren, adorn their Christian witness, and deprive their opponents of arguments against the gospel. In some, they glorify God who has made them what they are, namely, new creatures in Christ, and as such, they yield fruit that evidences holiness, eternal life, and the outcome of all. That's sweet. I wrote down paragraph four. Maybe it's paragraph three, the one that says the ability of believers to do good. That's three. All right, brother can't count. That's three. Let's read that together. The ability of believers to do good works does not spring in any way from themselves, but is derived from the Spirit of Christ alone. But besides the graces which they receive from him in the first instance, they need his further actual influence to give them the will and ability to perform the works that please him. Yet this does not mean that without that special influence, they are at liberty to grow careless of duty, for they must be diligent in stirring into activity the grace of God 
is in them. Notice now in our paragraphs that we just read, back in paragraph two, works that are truly good and which are done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and living faith. That's what we've been saying, right? It's the fruit, not the root. The root is faith, a saving faith that God gives us when he turns us to Christ, and that grows up into the fruit of good works. Now, look at the end of the paragraph three there, because I think it's, it's kind of channeling for us what's said in Titus 3, verse 8, when it says, it says, yet without that special influence, they are at liberty to grow careless of duty, for they must be diligent in stirring into the grace of God that is in them. The way Paul puts that in verse 8 is that we are to make sure that we are careful to devote ourselves to good works. We are to be devoted. Now, three quick things as we close from verse 8. Number one, an application to pastors and aspiring pastors. Notice there in verse 8, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Is the application. Our pastoral work isn't done merely by teaching doctrine, but also by insisting and teaching to how we live out the Christian faith. Our pastoral work, more specific to the context, isn't done until we lead ARC individually and collectively to be committed to good works, devoted to good works as an expression of faith and the work that God has done in our lives. Otherwise, we're just talking. Otherwise, we, we talk a good game and we profess sound things, but, but we don't live it. And, and it's in the living that we see the proof. It's in the living that we see the impact in Crete and the impact in our community. It's in the doing of these things, not merely the knowing of them, that we see God continue to work through us and to work for us. So Jeremy, Matt, self, others who aspire to leadership, this is, this is part of what we have to give ourselves to in prayer and instruction. And this is part of what we have to think about and plot about, and this is part of what you want you to pray for us in as we try to discern how best to help you and help us collectively commit ourselves, devote ourselves to these good works. So we went the other night to um, the event that Tim Boston organized on crime and redemption, thinking about over-incarceration and how to help ex-offenders get back into the community and back on their feet. And Jaylisha, as she often does, comes up to me after the service and in her fairly, you know, straightforward, no-nonsense way, she says, so what are we going to do? <laughs> I was like, Dad, he just finished, man. <laughs> you know, let her brother synthesize his notes at least, you know. But it's the question that verse 8 begs us to keep asking when we learn truths from God's Word. So what are we going to do? We're going to be devoted to this? We're going to be active on this? Or was this just a good panel discussion and an opportunity to take some selfies with sinners? Yeah? No. I, I call me a man of little faith, and I'm wel I, I welcome your correction and instruction. I, I don't think Anacostia River Church is going to solve the criminal justice system's problems. We're not going to fix poverty in one little church. I, I, you know, 
So our, our ambitions need to be chastened by the Scripture in reality. We can't do everything, but we must not do nothing. We can't do everything, but we must not do nothing. And we can make a difference. And we need to think about being devoted to good works on at least three levels, I think. What, what it is we can do individually as Christians, like the Good Samaritan traveling the Jer- Jericho Road who comes across this man who is beaten and left for dead, and, and he forgets his own agenda and serves that man, binds him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, gets him healed up, and pays the bills. We, we can individually do things, and we must pray for those opportunities. In fact, if you go back to verse 1, it says, be ready for good works. In other words, we shouldn't leave our house unprepared to see the needs of others and to serve the needs of others. It's a little silly example. You're going downtown to have lunch with somebody, you know you're going downtown. If you're going downtown in most cities in this country, you know you're going to pass homeless people. You know that. Are are we ready to serve them? I mean, are are we ready to put a little extra pocket change Change. Not that you have to give to everybody who asks. And I, I know we need to be wise and circumspect, but, but are we ready? Or, or do we take a little extra money to, so when we come out of the restaurant and somebody says, I want something to eat, if we don't feel comfortable giving them money, are we ready to say, hey, let's go back inside. I'll buy you a salad or buy you a sandwich. Are we ready is the question because we need to be devoted to doing good individually. And we need to be devoted to doing good as a congregation. What does it look like for us to be a community inside of this community bearing witness to Christ? What does that look like both in word, the preaching of the gospel, which is the best good work we can do, but what does it also look like in the sharing with others? You know, how are we going to think through benevolence as a church, right? How do we best get resources and help as a congregation to the neighbors that we we live next to? And and, and there are other ways that we want to organize ourselves in order to to do good in the community. Maybe there is an an organized thing that we can participate in as a church with regard to, say, criminal justice reform. I think we prayerfully do that. It would be a good thing. And then there's a third level, sort of the policy level. Again, not sure what we could do or should do, but we can pray about the Lord opening our eyes to seeing what we could do or should do. And not just on criminal justice issues, but on a whole range of justice issues or mercy issues or care issues for our neighbors. If we're devoted, we'll be praying and we'll be looking and we'll be taking opportunities as the Lord gives us wisdom and as he gives us resources. Individually, as a church, and in the broader society. I don't know what all of that looks like. I don't have to. God will lead us. God will guide us. We would be prayerful and devoted. So it's our job as pastors to insist on this, and it's your job as a congregation to say, yes, Lord, to your will and to your way, and for us to figure that out as a Christian community. Let me say one last thing. It's right there in that last sentence of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Good works are really good works. Sometimes I think among gospel-believing Christians, we think the only place of good works is to sort of set us up to tell people about Jesus. That's a good thing if it happens. But I actually think that that kind of makes good works, it can tempt us toward manipulation. 
it could tempt us towards some other things that, that are less than healthy. I think better to just recognize what's being said here in verse 8, that good works are good in and of themselves. It's good to do good. It's always the right time to do what's right. right? And these things are excellent. It means there, there's a quality about doing good for others, expecting nothing in return. There's a quality about that kind of selflessness and generosity and altruism that is praiseworthy. It's excellent. And it's profitable. It, it, it benefits people. It blesses people. And our statement of faith, I wonder if you saw this in paragraph two. Look back there with me in the middle because I, I love this. It unpacks for us verse eight, the last sentence in verse eight. So it says there, by, by means of them, by means of doing good works, believers, I notice several things that are, are profitable and excellent. By means of good works, believers make known their thankfulness. That's one of the ways we express gratitude to God for saving us is by doing good to others. And the only way to do good, really, without ruining it, is to have a glad, cheerful heart. You know, think about it. You, you, you're in need. You, you see somebody who could help you, and you ask them for help, and that takes a certain amount of humility and, and, um, and risk and and then they say to you something like, well, I'm, I'm going to give you. I don't want to, but I'm going to give it to you. Well, keep it, man. I mean, you know, it's just poison the gift, right? But gratitude, the, 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 the Christian's heart is to be this hothouse of gratitude that springs forth in thankfulness to God being expressed in generosity to others. So that's one benefit. Notice the second one. It strengthens their assurance of salvation. Now, this is especially sweet for those of you who, who struggle to know whether or not you're Christians. That's a struggle that lots of Christians have. And one of the things that you may get backwards is you may think, okay, I'm a Christian because I do the works, or I do the works to, to you know, become a Christian. No, that's, that's not how that works. It's not how that works. Here's what I think this means for you. Commit yourself to doing good. In the name of Christ, not trusting the good you do, but trusting that you would only do that in Christ's names because he's given you that faith and that desire. Right? And as you look out and you see the way you live in the name of Christ, doing good as you have occasion, not, as, not trusting the good, but trusting Christ himself, as you look out and you see that being borne out in your life, you have reason then to be confident that verse Five is true of you. He saved you. The only reason you do that work is because he saved you. And you just keep preaching that to yourself. I'm living for Christ, not of my own strength, but because he saved me. And your works then become so many testimonies to the fact that you are his and he is yours. So, so that's a benefit, the assurance of salvation, to edify, edify their brethren. In other words, when we do good with each other, we build one another up. We encourage one another. We strengthen one another. We adorn our Christian witness. The gospel is dressed in beauty by good works. 
And, and, and then notice, we deprive our opponents of arguments against the gospel. This is what Paul says in so many places in his letters, in Ephesians 6 and, and other places when he says, you know, slaves obey your masters or children raise your, or fathers don't provoke your children to wrath and wives submit to your husbands. You know, he goes down at the end of that and he says, so that the gospel be not slandered. So that they have no reason to slander us. It's the living out of this good life that actually becomes a good defense of the good news, right? And so we want to commit ourselves to it, and in some, we glorify God. God is glorified in our feeble efforts to do good in the world. However small, however grand, however little or however much he makes of them, he is glorified if his glory is our ambition. It's the good news that makes us good people. And as the good people made by good news, we're to devote ourselves to good works. Let's figure out what that looks like for us, family, as we go forward in faith and service together. One invitation, and I'll pray and close. If you're visiting with us and you're not yet a Christian, we want to do you good. Don't leave without talking to us about where you are spiritually. If, if you heard the truth about God's coming judgment, don't forget that and go off into life the way you were. If you heard the truth about God's great Savior, Jesus, his son, and the forgiveness and eternal life he offers, oh, really, don't go off without receiving that. Let us do you good by telling you how you can follow Jesus and so be saved. Let's pray together.